0: When we set out to report about head injuries in college sports, we knew we wanted to hear from athletes, but we also knew we probably wouldn't get very many of them to talk to us. And that hunch was right. Only two returned our calls, and only one would talk on the record. That was former Texas cheerleader Caitlin Benke. I'm honestly shocked that they claim to not have that data. The NCAA needs to say, in order to compete at all, um, you have to have done these. I think it's just a- Any reporter who covers college athletics will tell you it's pretty well known. College athletes are terrified of speaking out about controversial topics because they don't want to appear disloyal and because they believe that they could lose their place on the team if they break the rules and talk to the press without permission. Yes. You heard me right. Speaking to the press without permission is often against the rules. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because if you're a college athlete at a public institution in the United States of America, that school is considered a government agency. It's funded by taxpayer dollars, and that brings with it certain protections. Number one being the First Amendment.
1: It is a horrible, horrible
2: optic. The culture of secrecy, uh, we have been very familiar with that, but um, the fact that they're putting it in writing to that degree is,
1: uh, is really terrible. And I don't think that's what higher ed wants to be projecting out there in the 21st century.
0: From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Canham, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. For this episode, I brought in two people who have been leaders on the issue of athlete rights. Ramogi Huma, who is the executive director of the National College Players Association. And
1: I'm Frank Lamonti.
0: Frank Lamonti, who is the director here at the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information. With college athletics on the brink of a monumental turning point, there's really no better person to talk about this than you, Remoki. And for those that don't know you, Remoki is at the forefront of the movement to get college athletes more rights. And most recently, he's the guy who successfully pushed California to allow athletes to get paid, which has the potential to blow up the entire NCAA structure. And Frank, You've been working on this topic for years, whether universities are trampling on the free speech rights of student athletes. And now you've written this law review article, which is the reason we're sitting here today. The reason that we have this research, it made perfect sense that we would include a conversation with both of you in this podcast, which is about secrecy. For this episode, I want to start by jumping right in on the data Our student researchers at the Breckner Center used public records requests to obtain the rule books and media policies for athletes at 58 of the largest public universities in the country. And what they found is that 50 out of 58 policies categorically prohibit athletes from speaking to the press without first getting approval. Now, most policies say something along the lines of, If a reporter contacts you, you must refer that reporter to the athletics department's sports information or media relations office, and that office will decide if you can talk. And honestly, having covered major sports investigations and watching how universities operate for years, I really can't decide if I'm surprised by that number or not. I mean, I know we all know that athletics are notoriously secret. We know they tell athletes not to talk, but I guess to see it put in writing in such a way, I didn't know that they were being that bold. And I wanna start with this question to you, Frank, which is, is this a violation of the First Amendment?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's any question that a college athletic department at a public university lacks the authority to tell its student athletes, you're forbidden from speaking to the news media 24/7, 12 months a year about any subject. The starting point is a public university is a government agency and Government agencies are all subject to the constraints of the First Amendment. Any kind of a policy or a rule or a handbook they have that's inconsistent with the First Amendment is void and it's unenforceable. So we kind of analyze the issue a couple of different ways. If the starting point is that it's illegal to gag people from speaking, is there some kind of workaround that a university could claim? Is there some kind of an exemption they could cite that says, we get to deviate from the normal prohibitions? What if the athlete is thought of as a student? We started there. If the student athlete has the level of First Amendment protection that any other student has, then it's clear that a university doesn't have the authority to gag its students. University can't tell every college student you're forbidden from talking to the news media about anything during every waking hour of your life. No way they have that kind of control over their students. So if an athlete is seen as having the student level of First Amendment rights, you can't gag them from speaking to the media. That's really clear. Well, what if they have that employee level of protection instead? That might be what a college would argue. Look, we give you a uniform and some money and some housing and some food. In exchange for that, you're more like an employee and we have the employee level of control over you. Well, it turns out that's not legal either. There's half a century's worth of unbroken legal precedent where the courts have said you can't tell public employees they can't talk to the media about their jobs either. So no matter what hat they're wearing, whether they're wearing the student hat or the athlete hat or the employee hat, it just doesn't seem possible that the university has that level of control over their speech. I should add, too, that A university would run screaming from classifying its athletes as employees if they argued for the employee level of benefits. Universities have sought very, very ardently not to classify their athletes as employees. They don't want to give them workers compensation or disability or death benefits or any of the other benefits that would come with employee status. And so it's just a non-starter to say, we don't give you any of the benefits of employee status, but we claim you're an employee for purposes of taking away your First Amendment rights.
0: Ramogi, does this surprise you, that number, 50 of 58 policies?
2: Absolutely. I, I, it doesn't, um, you know, the culture of secrecy, uh, we have been very familiar with that. But um, the fact that they're putting it in writing to that degree is uh, is really terrible. Think about this. Players might watch their teammate die in a hazardous workout and not be able to talk to the media about it. And to have that kind of uh, gag over players... Um, you know, as a matter of policy is really unforgivable.
0: Ramogi, your focus has always been on making sure that athletes are not being abused at the college level. And that means everything from adequate, quick care for injuries, mental health, preventing emotional abuse by coaches, also working towards some kind of compensation. And I wonder if you think that these issues might not still be something that you're fighting for all these years later, if athletes could speak out when abuses were occurring.
2: I think that would be a huge element. Uh, I think if players felt like they can speak out without retaliation, uh, without losing their scholarships, um, I think that um, in many of these programs that are abusive, and and to be clear, this is not a school here and a school there. The rampant abuse combined with um, these restrictions as an excuse to get rid of a player, um, I mean, it's systemic, it's a systemic problem. And I think that if players had protections, they would be more willing, it still wouldn't be easy, but they'd be absolutely more willing uh, to speak out and try to get rid of some of these coaches and trainers that are really putting players in harm's way.
0: As we're sitting here today talking about this, there are two major events taking place in this country, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has a tremendous impact on athletes, and also a groundswell of protests, the size of which this country hasn't seen since the late 60s, challenging how we deal with institutional racism and because both of these topics really matter in this conversation, I want to I talk about this. And I want to start with race because, Ramogi, I looked at the NCAA statistics this week, and there's a really big disparity between Black players and Black leadership. For example, 56% of basketball players are Black, while only 28% of head coaches are Black. For football, it's 49% of athletes versus 15%. And overall, across the board, only 6% of the sports information officers are Black, which is traditionally the title that's held by the person in charge of deciding if you're going to talk to the media. And I wanted to get your reaction, like how all of that plays in.
2: What's interesting is that for a player who would want to exercise their freedom of speech on this issue, um, you know, they could otherwise be met with um, some of the people who are white that have really no, you know, in a sense, skin in the game, no really uh, real understanding as to how harmful that is, what a threat that is to the black community. And so for a player that would wanna speak out, they might be met with uh, people over them. that don't even understand the issue. They don't think it's a big deal. They don't think racism exists. They don't think um, there are are any bad police officers and much less why a a football player should be speaking out about something that's not about football. So I think that dynamic um, alone uh, puts players in a tough spot. Um, now pile on the policies and the culture of control when it comes to player speech, and it makes it much more difficult. Um, Actually, I was on a Zoom call with uh, about a dozen players, um, African-American players from a particular university um, in the days following the death of George Floyd. And it was supposed to be a discussion about college athletes' rights in the NCPA, but almost all of it was talking about racial injustice. And I mean, these players were devastated, you know, and for me, looking at 18, 19, 20 year olds, um, who are questioning, why Why isn't my coach speaking out? Why isn't my program speaking out? Um, and also, I mean, really conditioned. I mean, the first thing that they looked to were, was their coaches and program because that's who controls their speech. You know, what I left them with in part was, hey, don't look to your coaches and programs. If they speak out, that's great. You know, go ahead and approach them. But um, you're a human being before you're an athlete and you have every right to talk about these issues.
0: I guess what struck me about it was that it was predominantly white men telling, predominantly, Black men, that they couldn't talk, right? That's like, if you break it down, that's really what it comes to. And I've witnessed that personally. I was at one, because of you, actually in the in the locker room at Georgia Tech. In 2013, Ramogi's Athlete Advocacy Group organized a silent protest where players at several schools wore armbands with the words, all players united. I covered that protest. And I was interviewing uh, a young, I mean, he couldn't have been more than 19 years old young player with an armband on. And as I started to ask him why he was doing it, I could see his eyes shifting and he just like mid-sentence shut down. And I turned behind me and there was this, you know, probably 60 year old white, you know, man, assistant sports information officer who had told them no you know and and actually the system I figured out by watching this happened around the room with other reporters with, with the, the sports information officers would close their eyes and the players would stop talking and that was just like I mean I'll never forget that moment it, I've talked about it since
2: yeah I mean I think you've firsthand witnessed the actual dynamic I you know I'm always kind of from afar helping players um, who want to speak out but I think too what's important is when you're talking about the all players united what, what they were standing for that that message was about health and safety. It was about equal rights. It was about uh, making sure that they didn't have any less freedoms than other people. These are very important issues uh, to a disproportionately black team. I mean, you have half the rosters, uh, you know, at at many of these schools are black, um, which is disproportionate to the enrollment numbers. You know, the average school in in these same conferences only have a 3% enrollment. So largely when you're talking about not allowing equal rights to college uh, football and basketball players, for instance. Um, There is a racial undertone that there is a disproportional, um, really hardship that they're facing when they don't have equal rights. And it's with that context that they're being shut down that you witnessed, you know, the very, uh, probably the only time, you know, in recent history that players from different campuses try to speak out together on those issues. And you saw how easily it can get shut down. Every school that participated Um, It was one time, exactly one time. And after that, every single coach put pressure on the players not to do it again.
1: It is a horrible, horrible optic that the vast majority of college athletes are black and the vast majority of sports information people are white. And they're telling them what they can and can't say, particularly about social and political issues that in no way compromise the ability of the athletic program to do their job. It's just a bad optic. It's a bad look. And I don't think that's what higher ed wants to be projecting out there in the 21st century. In the land of the First Amendment, speech about social and political issues is right there at the top of the pyramid of what is protected. So if you got a policy at your government agency that says people can't talk about anything and it doesn't make any allowances at all for addressing social and political issues that have nothing to do with your ability to do your job, then that's almost certainly an unconstitutionally broad policy. That's the way all of these athletic department policies read. None of them say, go ahead and talk when you don't have the helmet on, when you don't have the uniform on, when you want to address social and political issues you care about. Not one of them says that. So you'd have every reason to believe that you're under the control of the athletic department 24-7, every waking hour, including when you want to talk about those political and social issues that every other 19, 20, 21-year-old in America feels passionate about.
0: And, I mean, Ramogi, you're the one who talks to them the most. You're in the most contact with these players. Is that what they think? Do they think they can't talk about anything?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, they know that anything they say represents the university. That's what's hammered into them all the time. They they are very aware that even when they're at home, if they send a tweet or a post on Instagram, all of it's subject to scrutiny. And matter of fact, these universities, many of them are hiring agencies to monitor all the players' social media And if there's a violation or anything that comes up that the the university doesn't like, they can lose their scholarship.
0: Frank, you wrote about this a couple of years ago, right? That's not legal either.
1: No, it's definitely not legal to tell people using your governmental authority as a bludgeon that they have to stay off of social media or they can only say positive or favorable things on social media. There are tons of these policies. They're unconstitutional and just begging to be challenged. And I think you have to look at the social media policies and the news media gag policies together You're a college athlete. You don't own a printing press. You don't have any other ability to engage with the public. These are your two ways of engaging with the public. Either you give an interview to the news media or you go on Twitter, and both of those avenues have been cut off. Both of those avenues, the most effective place, the 19 or 20 year old could try to reach out and say, hey, there's something wrong here. People are being abused. I'm being forced to run sprints at 105 degree weather. I feel like I'm gonna pass out. I'm not getting hydrated. Those types of things that people ought to have the ability to talk about, every avenue of reaching out to the public is cut off.
0: Let's talk about about COVID-19 for a minute. Are college athletes able to participate in the conversations about whether or not they'll play again in the fall?
2: You know, uh, they really haven't been engaged. You know, the players I've talked to, um, they have no idea, first of all, what the risks even are. They're not being told about the risk. So there's no informed decision. There's no informed consent. Um, they're being told that, that um, you know, when to report for so-called voluntary workouts. There are no voluntary workouts. You know, when it, when it comes to college sports, they're, they're they're pretty much mandatory. So, and they don't know whether or not if they choose not to go, if they'll lose their scholarship. So they're operating completely in the dark with the same power dynamic.
0: So the quotes that I've seen that voice concern, they're anonymous. They're not quotes with a name attached to them. Is that pretty much, I mean, is that pretty much across the board what's been happening? If they're voicing concerns, they're doing it anonymously.
2: Typically, and ever since, whether it be COVID or health and safety or any kind of injustice, um, at a, especially at a particular program, um, it's almost always confidential. I was on a, a call yesterday with um, a Zoom meeting with uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, staff, and I um, because they had asked to talk to some of the players who had concerns about uh, reopening college sports. And I had to get assurances that their identity, identities would be kept confidential. And they gave that. And, and with that, we had players participating and finally being able to speak openly. Um, and, and yet they still wanted that, uh, you know, the confidentiality.
0: I mean, what strikes me about that is COVID-19 is something that affects everybody in the world. It's, I mean, it's like universities are saying, sorry, athletes, you're not allowed to talk or have an opinion about something that literally everybody on earth has an opinion about. That's not an exaggeration. Like this affects everyone. Everyone's talking about it. Everybody wants to throw in their two cents about it. And now you have athletes who it will greatly affect because they're, they're going to have to gather and they can't talk about it.
2: Definitely. And um, no one can claim they clearly know all the risks. I mean, there was an op-ed from a Florida State player who was the first known to have contracted COVID. And um, he had a very hard time. It was actually pretty serious. And his dad also contracted it, who and he almost died. His dad used to play in the NFL, played at USC. And we know players are, are you know, whether or not they want to, they're going to be playing in many of these programs. So we hope that their youth will save them. But um, there are statistics out there that even the NCAA identifies certain athletes as at risk, specifically for COVID, which means if you have high blood pressure, obesity, which many of these linemen would fall into that category. Um, sickle cell, which is um, between sickle cell and, and hypertension, in the African American communities, there's it's more prevalent. Um, but and also just this under undercurrent. Um, one of the players yesterday talked about how their coach said that essentially um, the universities were talking about how the players could be used as the test subjects in returning to campus.
0: Frank, you found 50 or 58 colleges had these gag rules, right? But you also wrote in your paper that you thought the number was likely even higher. Can you explain that?
1: Yes. So for some of the schools that wrote back to us and told us, we don't have any written institution-wide policy. The response was, that's a coach-by-coach or a team-by-team decision. And we know from years of talking to sports writers and sports editors that they encounter these policies everywhere. It's not 80% of schools, it's 100% of schools. So we strongly suspect that even in those institutions where there's not a formal written policy in a handbook somewhere, the coach is still telling everybody, you don't talk to the media, and if you do, you're going to answer to me. You stay on message, you stay on script, you get approval for everything. So I suspect the number is really quite a bit closer to 100%.
0: So it's just not in writing.
1: It's not in writing because it doesn't have to be. The relationship is so intimidating, the power differential is so profound that nobody is going to go off script. Nobody is going to go off message. Nobody is going to risk being in the coach's doghouse
0: just for giving an interview. These policies are rationalized by the universities as an attempt to manage distractions. And the theory is that it keeps athletes from unwittingly sharing information with people who don't have their best interest in mind. But we know from some really powerful, modern examples that when athletes are able to speak freely, they do have the power to bring real positive change. We're talking about Colin Kaepernick. He's the San Francisco 49ers quarterback, and he's been refusing to stand for the national anthem.
2: I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people, you know, realize what's really going on in this country.
0: The general public listens to and respects athletes and what they have to say. And with that ability to come forward, they do have a lot of power.
2: Absolutely, they have a lot of potential power um, and a lot of it's from their visibility and fan base, people that look up to them, the access to the media, people in the media always, you know, are constantly wanting interviews from any of these players. And those players have an opportunity to bring awareness to anything they wanna bring. And, um, you know, I think that's clear. And, and, and I'll give one example. Yesterday I took a stand that was not only for me at FSU
0: football, it's for big George Floyd.
2: There was a, you know, a football player who spoke out about his coach's response Um, that he had talked to all the players about, kind of touched base about various issues happening in and around um, social injustice. Florida State football coach Mike Norvell told The Athletic he had a back-and-forth individually with each of his players. Florida State star defensive lineman Marvin Wilson took issue with that characterization, tweeting, quote, this is a lie. And me and my teammates as a whole are outraged. Very, very rare. Players spoke out publicly and said, that's a lie. You know, he's, he hasn't talked to all of us. And until, fu- and until further notice, we are boycotting. And, you know, that was a powerful statement.
0: Mike
1: Norbell then responded saying, I'm proud of Marvin for utilizing his platform to express his reaction.
2: Not too long after that, they were actually involved in team activities um, that protested the racial injustice in policing. So uh, players have power. It's very rare that they wield do it. Um, but I think that absolutely they have a platform. They have a platform that can you know raise awareness and i think the university in some cases fears that platform because if that platform were to alienate their corporate interests their economic interests in any way or their coaches personal preferences or comforts um that's when they get uncomfortable and i think that that is part of the resistance to um you know to letting players speak freely
0: i think i should Full disclosure, let everyone know that you, Rumogi, and I have had a reporter-source relationship for almost 10 years now. And, I mean, it's been constant that you call me up and say, hey, there's this really horrible thing happening. There's this abuse happening. Let's do a story. And for years, I've watched you also struggle to get those stories, the attention they deserve, usually for the same reason, which is talking to the athletes is nearly impossible. And reporters like me have to be creative and find ways to tell the story without the athlete most of the time. And I mean, even after something major happens like a death or a major injury, I mean, can you kind of run through some of the examples that were most frustrating for you or you're doing what you do best, like going out there and trying to shine light on these incidents, but you can't get the players to talk
2: definitely i mean i really can't share too many details about the most frustrating because the players never spoke and without the players speaking as an organization we can't go you know hurling accusations and so that's the most frustrating times but you've seen me struggle you've seen how and you've talked to some of the athletes here and there um the few that were willing to talk really you know demanding anonymity and Um, You know, there was one uh, that comes to mind at, uh, well, most recently at Maryland.
0: Nineteen-year-old offensive lineman Jordan McNair was hospitalized after he had trouble breathing and standing upright during practice. In May 2018, a Maryland football player, Jordan McNair, died after collapsing on the practice field.
2: An independent investigation into the death of University of Maryland football player Jordan McNair found the university is responsible for his death.
0: And a 192-page investigative report later revealed members of the coaching staff subjected them to serious physical and verbal mistreatment. Quote, a culture where problems festered because too many players feared speaking out.
2: The players um, really had to leak information to the press. You know, Central Florida, there was a death, Eric Plancher in 2008. Um, the players had to leak information.
0: A
1: University of Central Florida football player is dead after off-season conditioning drills on campus.
0: We talked about Eric Plancher's death briefly in the last episode because UCF refused to hand over aggregate data on head injuries by claiming their athletic association is private, even though when Eric Plancher's family sued over his death, they argued in court, it's public. Romoki experienced a different kind of secrecy from UCF athletics.
2: Um, the players were told explicitly not to talk to the media after their teammate Eric Plancher died. Misinformation was coming out and the players, as a matter of policy, weren't allowed to talk to the media. Thankfully, some of them did, you know, um, they again de- demanded uh, anonymity. Those are some of the extreme cases, but there is a whole uh, litter of broken bodies that did survive, you know, that um, also if, if players were, were able to blow a whistle without retaliation and speak up, uh, maybe the culture in those programs would change. Um, One of the issues I brought to you uh, several years ago was at the University of Illinois.
0: The girls were divided for practice, with one group, predominantly Black, treated much worse and criticized for their culture.
2: My approach has always been not to ever try to force anybody or pressure anybody to speak out, but to to lay out options.
0: What we ended up doing as a workaround was we talked to the players' mothers. She was humiliated, she was yelled at, and she was always degraded. But that level of control that they had, that fear that they instilled in those, in those female players that, you know, that they couldn't be the ones to tell their own story.
2: The last thing players want to do is go up against their university. I mean, it's very, I can't even imagine a player just voluntarily making up some accusation against a powerful coach and program just for kicks. You know, just by the time they come to us, um, they've gone through hell, honestly, and they feel very isolated alone. They, they don't feel empowered. They feel very scared.
0: To this day, Illinois policy still says that media interviews have to be pre-arranged, even though those stories led to the firing of a coach.
1: How would you describe your experience with Greg Winslow as your coach? Horrific. It made me hate the sport.
0: As a manipulator, a monster... The examples are abundant. Coach Hahn was physically and mentally abusive to her and other young gymnasts. At the University of Utah, it took several years to remove a swimming coach whose players complained privately about cruel and manipulative behavior. At the University of Nebraska,
1: Nebraska softball coach Ron Ravel has been placed on paid administrative leave.
0: Softball players said an abusive coach made athletes play through painful injuries. One player later told the Washington Post, quote, the truth is there is no one athletes can report to. Everybody that an athlete could trust or may rightfully trust, they still work for the university and answer to the university. It's one of the worst sexual abuse scandals in the history of sports. And of course, I think it goes without saying, this is part of the reason that well-known abusers like Larry Nasser at Michigan State.
1: Dr. Larry Nasser was the head doctor for USA Gymnastics. He's
0: facing two counts of first-degree criminal sexual conduct. And Richard Strauss at Ohio State.
2: Abused male athletes from 14 different sports.
0: Were able to abuse athletes for many years. Frank, in the Law Review article that you wrote recently on this topic, you said this, which I found to be really compelling, so I'm going to read part of it. Athletes are uniquely vulnerable to exploitation because of the cultural norms of competitive sports, with their emphasis on conforming to rules, obeying authority figures, and stoically tolerating pain. Almost surely, these serial abusers would have been stopped far earlier sparing generations of victims if athletes felt empowered to take their safety concerns to the public. And to be clear, you're talking about the Larry Nassers of the world here. Can you expand on that?
1: Yeah. So some of the scariest and most toxic of these policies that you'll see on the books and athletic departments are very explicitly anti whistleblowing policies. They don't just say, don't talk to the media, they'll go even further and they'll say, if you have a problem or a complaint or a concern, keep it in the family. That's a not uncommon type of a phrase that you'll see in an athlete handbook. Kent State has a policy like that. Iowa State has a policy like that. We saw that several times where people were being told not just clear your interactions with the news media, but don't talk to anybody external to the program if you have any concerns about the way the program is running. And so that's an explicit anti-whistleblowing policy. And it seems backed up by the threat that consequences will be brought down on you by the team. Maybe you'll get benched, maybe even worse, you'll lose your scholarship. And the amount of power that an athletic department holds over that student athlete really can't be overestimated. You think about when you've got that athletic scholarship, not just your playing time is at stake, your room and board is at stake, your tuition is at stake. Literally, these folks have your life in their hands. So are you going to talk when all of that is at stake? Almost certainly not. And so many kinds of secrets wound up being kept inside the family, even at times when the athlete's own safety is at risk.
0: There are other less serious but still significant cases out there, like at Kansas State where this policy forbid members of the equestrian team from responding to media requests when their university decided to cancel the sport and the athletic department told players don't take part in any interviews unless it's been approved. And they went as far as saying, always speak positively about the program, teammates, and coaches. Frank, why is this one important to mention?
1: Because, again, when you're talking about a public university and a student athlete, this is a government agency, a government agency with a lot of power over people's lives. And you couldn't require any other citizen to say nice things about the government in any other context, right? You can't use governmental authority to compel people, not to criticize the government. In fact, that's kind of the whole point of the First Amendment. That's literally why it's there. The First Amendment exists so that we get to make the government look bad. That is explicitly the purpose of it. So the idea that somehow a university has reputational interest or interest in avoiding controversy that override individual people's rights, that just fundamentally misconstrues how the First Amendment works. So we've got an issue that is of larger public concern. Let's say it's the cancellation of a sports program. The only way those athletes can engage in public dialogue and maybe change the outcome of a decision they don't like is to be able to speak about it. If they can't speak about it, then they can't influence the decision. And if they can't influence the decision, then they're powerless over their own futures.
0: You mentioned times where it's like seemingly harmless pieces, um, player profiles that were written without the reporter having access to the player who is actually being profiled.
1: So, In the land of the First Amendment, there's a concept called tailoring. The idea is we allow the government to regulate speech in very narrowly tailored ways. So, if you had a policy at the athletic department that said don't show your playbook to other people, don't give away internal team strategies, that's the kind of policy that could hold up constitutionally. The government has a legitimate interest in safeguarding those secrets. But if the policy says don't ever talk to anybody about anything, that's not a narrowly tailored policy. So the way that these policies are invariably written and the way that they're enforced gives the athletes the idea that there is never a time that they are free without approval to speak about anything, even the most harmless things, even grandma's apple pie recipe. The the idea that you have that level of control over an athlete is just unprecedented in any government interaction with its citizens. There's no class of citizens, not students, not employees, frankly, not even prison inmates that has zero First Amendment protection.
0: We've seen football coaches make blanket policies that any player in their first year cannot talk, no matter what. That's true at the University of South Carolina, Colorado State University, and the University of Alabama. In fact, Alabama's legendary head coach, Nick Saban, explained this by saying that it prevents inexperienced players from making missteps. But what happens when something is going wrong? Some policies specifically address this. These are direct quotes from the policies that we obtained. At Iowa State, football players are told, do not take your complaints to the newspaper. The coach's office is the only place for these. Keep it in the family. Kent State's athlete handbook says, don't take your complaints to the media. The coach's office is the only place for these. Texas Tech tells football players, Anything that happens with this team, anything within the program or the locker room, stays with the football program and in the locker room. And East Carolina University says, If you do not have anything good to say, do not say anything at all. And then in all capital letters, the handbook says, Do not complain about the coaches, teammates, or the university. Now, you might be thinking, Policies are one thing, but I'm sure that in reality, journalists can get what they need. I'm sure they're talking to athletes as long as they ask, as long as they follow the rules. Well, we at the Breckner Center partnered with the largest association of sports reporters in the country, the Associated Press Sports Editors, and we surveyed the reporters, asking for their experiences in getting these kinds of interviews. Of 32 responses from various media organizations across the country, none of them said they are always free to speak to the college athletes they are covering without first getting clearance from the school. And only three reporters said they always get the interviews they need as long as they ask permission. When we asked if this diminished the quality of their reporting, more than 90% said that it had. In at least two handbooks, we found that this rule seems to extend to the reporters, too, warning not just the athletes that they will be punished, but threatening the journalists by saying that breaking the rules may be punished by a loss of credentials, meaning you can't go cover our sporting events anymore if you talk to an athlete without going through the proper channels. We found this to be the case at two schools, the University of Oregon and at Rutgers, Yes, the same Rutgers where former basketball coach Mike Rice was fired after videos leaked of him kicking and taunting players. Important to note that that video was leaked by a former staffer, not an athlete. So let's say you're a journalist covering the football team at the University of Oregon, and you hear that the star player, who is already being investigated following a fight with his girlfriend, got into some locker room fights with teammates too. You want to talk to players and find out if this is true. But if you do that, if you do your due diligence, you could potentially lose your credentials. That seems really crazy, especially because, well, we know that happened in 2016. The University of Oregon actually did punish a student reporter taking away his press credentials when he interviewed teammates about violent encounters with one of the star players. The reporting won a National Investigative Reporting Award, and you'd think the university would be proud of that. Actually, it reprimanded the reporter and yanked the newspaper's press credentials for an upcoming game. After an uproar, the university did an internal investigation and determined... That it did nothing wrong, mostly because other universities have similar policies. Because, Mom, everyone else is doing it. Frank, has anyone ever challenged this?
1: No. Interestingly enough, neither the athletes nor any news organizations, to our knowledge, have formally taken on one of these policies. It does happen in the workplace context. Employees take on these policies fairly regularly, and they always invariably win. But athletes haven't seen fit to do it, and I honestly think that's a combination of two things. First, nobody is that motivated to give an interview, that they want to spend two and a half years in federal court adverse to their own institution. It's just the incentive is not there to take it on. And the second thing is those people who do run afoul the policy, anybody who gets caught going off script or going off message and giving an unapproved interview probably just gets benched for a quarter or benched for half of a game, and that's not enough to cost somebody to get a lawyer and go to federal court. The kind of person that it's going to take to take one of these policies on is somebody that has nothing to lose, somebody that actually gets kicked out of school, loses their scholarship. At that point, the person will feel free to take it on. But until then, I think we're kind of stuck with it, unless a news organization were to try.
0: So even though it's a blatant violation of the First Amendment, like, obvious. There's no other way of changing it if somebody doesn't step forward and file a lawsuit.
1: I think that's right because the incentive is certainly on the part of the athletic department to control to the max. They feel like they can get away with doing this because they're kind of impervious to challenge. They're holding all the cards in that relationship with the athletes and they know there's decades of experience that tells them that they're likely to get away with it. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like speeding on the highway. They see everybody doing it and they assume it's fine It's not fine. It's not legal at all. It's just common.
0: I mean, I think I know the answer to this already. Why do these schools have so much power? The power to blatantly violate the First Amendment and nobody wants to stand up to them. Two groups of people, athletes and journalists, they have a lot of power, right? They have a lot of influence in the world, but still these universities have scared them enough.
2: You know, my my two cents is, although many of these issues have have been discussed over the years on the periphery, um, which is, I mean, this is really one of the reasons that I was excited to come do an interview and and to see what you all had, because you'd be surprised how much really people haven't looked into it, you know? So what you're doing, the research you've done is novel. Uh, Frank's analysis is novel. Uh, You know, we've all been discussing the power dynamic And I think that's why it's been able to persist, you know, in terms of athletes, um, not to mention athletes, many of them think they're gonna go pro. You know, the last thing they wanna do is rock the boat. And plenty of coaches are quick to say, hey, you know, play right, you know, act act right, or else I'll go tell these scouts, um, what a bad person you are, why they shouldn't have you on their team.
1: I think that the general public hasn't really gotten to this realization yet, that they're being denied information that they would otherwise be entitled to, and that they'd be interested in, and that might be important if we can just loosen some of these gag restrictions.
0: I mean, that same public is up in arms, though, and rightfully so, when these major scandals are unearthed, right? It, you know, that have, have been taking place over decades, decades of abuses of, of athletes um, at major universities. Yet, you know, it's just like this barrier that no one no one seems to be want to be the one to, to stand up and, and change this awful precedent.
2: I think there's another dynamic here that we haven't really talked about is the fact that college athletes don't have representation. You know, if you look at the other sports, there's unions. Who do you think would be following these lawsuits and, and holding their, these uh, people accountable when, when their, uh, their players' rights are violated?
1: I'm actually cautiously optimistic that we're at a moment in the culture where it's possible to contemplate that things might change. And I do think that's largely a result of the police brutality debate we're having in America, the larger racial justice debate we're having in America. It's a horrible, horrible optic that the vast majority of college athletes are black and the vast majority of sports information people are white and they're telling them what they can and can't say, particularly about social and political issues that in no way compromise the ability of the athletic program to do their job. It's just a bad optic. It's a bad look. And I don't think that's what higher ed wants to be projecting out there in the 21st century.
0: I think it's important to say that in the last few weeks, we have seen some universities take some steps to recognize that athletes, especially black athletes, need to be able to use their voice and speak freely about racial inequities in their programs. Ramogi and I had a follow-up conversation about this after we taped our interview, and I asked him, do you think things are really changing, or will this be a fleeting moment in time where athletes felt particularly empowered? His answer is that it's unclear. What is clear is that these policies still exist. They still unconstitutionally gag the rights of college athletes— And so the prospect of being kicked off the team, losing a scholarship, altering the course of their lives, will be something that they have to weigh before they decide to speak out. About race, about returning to games amidst a pandemic, about mistreatment of injuries, about abuse, about anything that comes up that you or I or anyone else in America has the unalienable right to talk about. Next time on Why Don't We Know.
2: You're not thinking about your 18-year-old taking a poli-sci class, and they're sitting right underneath an asbestos-coated ceiling. You know, it's, people, it's just not on anyone's radar.
0: A danger lingering from the mid-20th century that many universities have failed to address. Student, it is the perfect crime. Like, I live in LA, and you couldn't write the script for asbestos.
2: It's a staggering amount of asbestos, just people don't know how much because nobody says how much. And when you have billions of dollars available year after year, why do you have asbestos in your buildings? It's because you don't give a shit.
0: This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannum. The associate producer is Tori Whitten. In addition, Virginia Hamrick filed public records requests for this episode. This episode was edited by Amy Fu. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. Audio mixing was done by Matthew Abramson. The executive producer is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Breckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information about this episode, visit www.whydon'tweknow.org.